Hello and welcome to the London Architect podcast. My name is Lily Patient and I'm your host. I'm a recent graduate from the University of Birmingham where I studied geography. The aim of this podcast is to shed some light on industry opportunities um, in the construction, planning and design industry. Um, today we have Neil Dakshi with us from Neil Dakshi Architects. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Um, Neil, would you like to tell us a little bit about your company and yourself? Um, well, my company is me, myself and I. Um, I'm a sole practitioner, um, as are, I guess, a large percentage of architects in the UK. Um, and um, so various reasons why uh, I prefer to operate that way. Uh, it, it's it, it's a choice. Uh, it sort of comes down to, um, I guess, my work history is that I've always worked with smaller practices and I sort of found that the connection that I've had with clients um, has, has been much stronger uh, working in a smaller environment uh, and doing that I, I like to do I don't know whether I'm megalomaniac or a control freak I like to do everything um, yeah so I like to um, obviously go out meet clients to start off with yeah but I like making sure that I you know I'm delivering everything and I think Having worked with practices where I felt that there are other issues at play, uh, whether it's I don't know profit or uh, uh, for the practice or, or, yeah, or for like for commercially driven. Yeah, um, I get to choose who I work with. Yeah, I get to to I guess yeah, and they choose me as well. Uh, I think that's important uh, when you, you work with people. Do you build a better rapport with your clients because there's more sort of trust in it if you're the, the face of the company and you know, you're yeah. the main man? Um, I I think the, the clients look at it two ways. Maybe they think that I don't have the bandwidth to deliver what they're after. Uh, and then they might go for... I mean, I've been in situations... Increasingly, you have to pitch for work. I mean, although a lot of mine is through recommendation maybe occasionally I'll be up against another couple of architects and they might be slightly bigger practices. Uh, and I understand why people feel that they'll get uh, a better service from a larger practice because um, I might be spinning plates, I might be working on five jobs, six yeah. jobs, seven jobs at the same time uh, and I can't necessarily hand over anything to anyone else. Do. I do use freelancers every now and again. Yeah. Uh, but the, the flip side of it is that I am the one that's dealing with the, the job mm. and your you're sort of looking at the work that I've done in the back in, in the past, and you know uh, that that that's off the back of the way that I work, yeah. and what I've delivered. And uh, I guess if clients are calling me up and that's what they want, um, the only way of delivering that is really to do it myself. Yeah, um, yeah, um, definitely. Would you like to tell us a little bit about your education and? your journey into architecture where did it all begin yeah um it was funny i've been thinking about that a lot um because i've got son that's going to university shortly and he's doing all his applications i'm sort of putting myself back in his perspective because i knew what i wanted to do yeah and he, he doesn't um although when i was much younger i wanted to design cars um, okay so uh, it's not it's not disassociated it's not a huge drug no. yeah um but um, then I think I, I did a bit of work experience. Um, I've, I've been on building sites. I like, yeah, I, I quite like being on building sites. Um, I like the fact in particular that you, you're, well, I guess, 
if you're designing cars, eventually it goes into production and you see them out on the street. But you you, you make stuff, you you deliver stuff to people. It's a profession where uh, I think you, it's a tangible result at the end of it. It's, it's not yeah. like working in finance or, or, or other sectors that yeah. a lot of my peers went into. Um, so from wanting to design cars and then flipping to uh, wanting to design houses, uh, I guess there was a point early on at school where they make you choose your subject so early. Yeah. Um, so I dropped art very early. Um, How uh, old were you? Uh, probably would have been about 12, 13. Okay. So I never did art for GCSE and I never did art for A-level, which which was significant in, in, later on. Yeah. So when I applied to universities, um, there are different schools uh, in the country and they all have different uh, focuses. Um, so some will be more artistic, like... Mm. Um, University of Cambridge, UCL, um, and then others. I, I went to Edinburgh in the end, and the reason why I did, uh, I love the city, and that's one thing. Uh, yeah, it's very they, important. Yeah, uh, yeah, obviously. I mean, you're going to be there, especially with an architecture degree, you're going to be there potentially for six, seven years. Yeah. Um, and then... Um, what, what other unis was it out of for you? I think Edinburgh was always number one. Uh, Manchester, Liverpool... I, I mean, it's very hard to remember now. I didn't want to live in uh, live in London, being in London, because I'm a Londoner. Yeah. And I wanted to get away because yeah. various reasons I wanted to get away. And it was about as far as you can get, really. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but my school really wanted me to go to Cambridge, and they felt that I should I should be I should walk into a, a get get a place at, at Cambridge because I was academically strong, but they didn't really see that, that the real picture of Cambridge was that I needed a strong portfolio, and I'd given up art, and I didn't really want to go there because uh, I wanted to go to a bigger city. Um, but a school like Edinburgh, I mean, they're, they're, like I say, there are artistic schools. There are some which are much stronger engineering-wise, much more technical, and you, you know, really get into nuts and bolts things. Edinburgh, we studied a lot of architectural history. I loved history. I didn't do it for A-level, but I loved history um, and philosophy as well. Yeah. So, yeah. Edinburgh must have been a perfect place to study architectural history. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. I mean, not, uh, not just because of the city, but because of the teachers there as well. Yeah. Um, just come back from Florence last weekend. Oh wow! And I'm just remembering. I'm just remembering all of my architectural history lectures with a guy called uh, Dr. Jim Lawson and, and Ian Boyd Wright. Uh, Ian Boyd White, sorry. Um, just they weren't teaching architecture, but but I mean, studying an architecture degree is so varied. Anyway, we did photography, did architectural history, a bit of art history, mm. philosophy. Making stuff in a workshop, that was really important to me. I love being in a workshop. And the workshop in the old days used to be open 24 hours and sort of the, the health and safety issues yeah. that you have now, you'd never be able to do that. Yeah. We'd be operating uh, bandsaws and things on very little sleep. Um, you had a studio culture back in those days uh, where you'd all work in studios because you weren't really working on on laptops in your bedrooms. You were going in using drawing boards. Yeah making models, uh, doing metalwork, doing woodwork. Um, I almost set the department on fire when I did oh. a sculpture in lard <laughs> with a heated element in the middle and then the fire alarms all went off and, and it was catching flame. It's part of the but, fun. <laughs> yeah, but an architectural degree is great. Yeah. Um, photography, philosophy, yeah, all and sorts. And you went to Andalusia, didn't you? Was that for a yeah, I mean, year well, out? Yeah, you study your first degree and then you take a year out and then you come back and do what's called a diploma. So the year out is is your 
your window into the working world. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I know sometimes you sort of end up as a little bit cannon fodder. Um, sometimes, and particularly if you're working for small practices, you might end up as, you know, something really important in the chain. So, you know, people will rely on you and you have to deliver stuff. And you get to meet clients and you get to do all sorts and gradually you get get your experience that way. Um, yeah, so I don't know. I, I, I'd always tend to recommend that people go for... Whichever they they might not be massively prestigious practices, uh, but I think if you're working on, say, a half a million pound project, you'll see a much bigger part of that process than if you're working on a five billion pound project. Yeah, because obviously your 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 input you get a lot more satisfaction out of the final product. you will be taken to more site meetings and you will be introduced to clients a lot more, mm-hmm. um, which I think is sort of the lifeblood of what I do is is, is that client-based um, yeah, interaction. Um, and that's probably what, yeah, I think that's probably the favourite part of what I do at the moment is actually meeting families because I work a lot with families. I, I don't work that much commercially, but I do do a few... Uh, commercial developments for old old clients yeah so what was your first sort of job after university i worked for a company called hlw uh, and although there were three letters to the to the company there was only one who was w the h and the l were based in uh, kuala lumpur because they were three guys that worked together and then two of them went off to, but to make themselves, I guess, feel a bit bigger, they had, they had three names in, in the practice. Okay. Um, so I worked for this old practitioner. And again, I had, you know, more experience than I could necessarily handle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was definitely green at the time because my, my work experience being, I mean, you mentioned it was in Andalusia. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it it was it was great experience to live abroad, yeah. uh, but I didn't necessarily get the experience working that I should have done. That I would have done because um, we're working on international results, yeah, and they're not going to fly the part one student out to Egypt to meet yeah, the course. client, are they? So I never saw any of that. But did, in London, I did. Did yeah. you speak Spanish? I in... didn't. No. So how did I, you I did find that? Uh, well, in the south of Spain, then no one spoke English, or not many people spoke English. Mm. So I just learned. Um, it's an easy, I, I spoke French. Okay. And to jump from, and, and I, I, I've done a bit of Latin at school. So were you fairly fluent by the end of the year? or? Yeah, I would have said so, yeah. And yeah. have you withheld that still? No, not really. Although my sister, my sister, when I came back from Spain, uh, would be 97, my sister went out after, and she hasn't come back since. Uh, she's a teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, uh, so I have Spanish family out of Spanish niece now. So we do speak Spanish a bit and we do go there a fair bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's certainly not something that I'd say that I was fluent. It's not a language I'm fluent in. It must have been a really big change sort of working on um, these like fantastical designs on your university degree and then, you know, coming back working in London yeah. starting and then actually putting things into practice yeah. and, and materializing well I mean I remember my second job and, and the interview for that second job and I got out my portfolio of all this amazing stuff that I did at Edinburgh with all my imagination and all this philosophy and all this theory and the guys that were interviewing me were just looking at me blankly not I mean not necessarily not understanding but not particularly interested in, 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 in ultimately um, they liked the way that I could 
converse with him and that I could convince him. That's part of, that's part of what you learn at university is that, um, when you're at architecture schools, I haven't taught at an architecture school for a long, long time. I did a little bit early on. Um, but certainly when I was studying, and I don't know if it's the same now, but, but, but you, you do your work and you, you, you have once one tutorials and then you, after you have a, a semester, you present your work in front of all of your peers. Okay. And you have it's tutors. Quite daunting. Yeah, you pin it up on the walls. I don't know whether you just project it now because it's all done on computers. Yeah. And, you know, there'd be, if there was a really good, we call them crits, critiques. Yeah. But if, if there was a really good crit, um, the whole studio would empty and you'd go to the crit room and you'd watch, watch someone sort of explain this amazing film. Or if there was a really bad one and yeah. the tutors were absolutely slaughtering and you, the studios would empty and you'd end up in the crit room and you'd all be watching it because it's sort of some sort of masochistic pleasure that you oh take God. in. Does that still happen? I, th I think it does. I mean, I, I've got a, I've got a relative that's, that's recently finished studying architecture, and they still talk about crits now as being sort of like the most exciting time. Mm. And, and also, you, you, you're sleep deprived by the, by the time you're going into the crit room because you're having to probably like like you when you did your dissertation, you're, you're staying up late nights. You know, you might not sleep for three nights. Yeah. On the Red Bull back then, it was Pro Plus. There was no such thing as Red Bull back then. <laughs> we have we still have Pro Plus. Oh, now. okay, yeah, but we'd be popping the Pro Plus, <laughs> and then after no sleep, you'd, you'd have to go in front of your peers and your tutors, and they could be really, really harsh. God, on it you. sounds like a nightmare. Uh, but uh, it, it's relatively good preparation for yeah character building. To people. Um, I, I reckon it's probably a little bit more pleasant now because I don't think you could be quite as rude as you could. In any field now, you certainly couldn't behave that way in terms of really tearing someone apart. And I've seen students in tears running off, and it's not, yeah, it's, yeah. Um, but Gosh. like I say, they were, they were some of the more entertaining. Things. So obviously when you moved into your career after university, you didn't have any of that, which must have been a bit of a relief. But what, what else was a big change to you, you know, is... Oh, yeah. Um, well, like you say, all of these fantastical designs you have complete control over uh, and then you're put into the real world and you have to deal with, I mean, first and foremost, your clients. Yeah, yeah. They're front and centre of everything. So when you're doing your stuff at university, you might have an invented client and they might come into the crit and, and give you a bit of feedback. But really, it's they're not real clients, are they? Mm. When you've got someone that's putting down, I don't know, whether it's a massive corporate thing and they put billions of pounds into an investment and they're trying to see their profits or whether you have a, 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 someone that's investing their life savings or taking out a massive mortgage in order to do the work. You know, these are things that you don't consider, you, unless they're real, you don't consider them university. So working with a, within a budget, um, working to deliver a brief as well for people. And, and actually, it's not... In, in my situation, when I do a lot of domestic work, it's not my house. I'm not going to live there. And, and so I can advise people and, 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 and really show them stuff that maybe they haven't considered before. Yeah. But I, and sometimes it may feel like I'm lecturing people uh, or, or sometimes you, you might even end up having to resolve disputes between Two Family members that don't uh, that don't necessarily see the project the same way and want different yeah. things out of the project. There's lots in it, and until you actually deal with people, it's dealing with people. Yeah. When you're at university, you don't really deal with people. Everything's just, I mean, it's it's amazing fun, but it's not real. Yeah. Uh, and you gain lots of the skills, like I said. I'm going to a crit and 
and justifying stuff, working hard to deliver deadlines. You know, we architecture is a really tough degree. Yeah, we work in, as far as I could see, we were working a lot harder than all the other students. Yeah, I mean, I I know some people that did architecture at university, and it seems like it's the same. Like they were literally selling their soul to complete these <laughs> portfolios and stuff. It's like seven years. Yeah, I mean, it, it sort of depends on what what school you go to. Um, but I went to a Scottish university, so we did four years, and then we did a year out in between the third and fourth year. It wasn't quite a year mm -hmm. out. Um, it was like a term summer and a term. Um, so that I suspect so the university could get fees for the whole year without teaching you for the whole year. Yeah. Uh, and then you came back and did your diploma after two years. I mean, but you could leave with a degree. And I've got people, friends that, that left with degrees and went off to do other other things. I mean, because the skills, critical thinking, um, uh, design, presentation, um, problem solving, yeah. um, all of that good. Very applicable. It is, yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, um, and then um, I think, yeah, it, it is it, it is a great degree whether you're going to be an architect or not. Mm. Um, and I'm trying to think of what my peers are doing now. I mean, Yeah, how many uh, of them have stayed within architecture? A fair few. Um um, I've got someone that, that's, that does CGI's for sort of Hollywood movies now. Um, people that uh, the guy that does woodwork, uh, plenty of joiners. People that have gone into sort of property management and investment yeah. and, and that side of the property business. So you can see how they're still honing on that knowledge from that yeah, degree. I, I guess it's. I guess it is. Yeah, it, you are. Um, I think, um, I guess the people that really, really loved it, those that I think really, really loved that, that experience of working all those late nights and delivering those projects and taking real ownership. I mean, a lot of those are, are the people like me that are the sole practitioners now. Because mm. um, a fair few of us are sole practitioners. And we're sort of the ones that, that always seem to be in studio back in the day. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I guess our life, as sad as it is, sort of hasn't, change to, to that degree you sort of would you say that you have the same sort of interest as you did back then you're still following the i was um no i think things have changed uh because for start I was in my 20s then wasn't i um and, and now you sort of look at the you look at the world it's completely different as well yeah the world back then i mean i think we were just trying to do and and when i graduated it, it was what 99 for my second degree and um, new labour had just come in, come into London and work, and there was so much going on and so much aspiration. We really, and, and we were all getting more experience than we than we we could handle. Mm. We were, lots of us were working on really big jobs and, and all that. Now, I, I would say, uh, and certainly at school, we were really, really sort of trying to do fantastical things. Uh, and not necessarily responsible things. Yeah. Um, I can remember at school, uh, back in the early 90s, uh, we had an environmental management course. And it was very dry, but it was just at the start of trying to think about making buildings more environmentally friendly and, and uh, zero emissions. Yeah. All of that in the early days. 
And I guess the two didn't go together for me. Uh, you couldn't do one and be exciting. And I really wanted to be exciting. And I really wanted to be as outrageous as I possibly could. Because yeah. I was never going to get an opportunity again. Uh, now, my thinking has completely changed. Um, I think uh, that I've, as a profession, and I think it's probably, I think it's probably self-induced, but the profession is where it's, you know, the RIBA, uh, building regulations are tightening up, but ev everyone is pointing in the direction of, of making buildings. Um, yeah, well, obviously, we, we've got to be net zero, haven't yeah. we? Um, and, but you mentioned in our pre-meet chat um, that you are uh, you have a passive house accreditation. How I don't yet. Oh, you don't I yet. I don't yet. No, I am. I am doing it. But when I have the time, that's, that's another thing. But I am. I am. I, I have a client that wants me to sign a passive house, and and, and they've told me to to because um, I, I I designed uh, and actually I mean I design everything in mind from yeah. day one to really take on some of those theories. Yeah. Uh, because it makes it a lot more easy in the long run. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about what passive house technologies actually are? Well, I mean, it, effectively, it, it's about having uh, an energy footprint of, of, of zero. I mean, there, there is a there is a criteria that there's a, a quantitative criteria about the the actual n number of kilowatts a house can. I don't have it on the tip of my tongue, <laughs> but 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 effectively. It, there is a definition that defines it as being a, a house which uses a certain number of kilowatts to basically run itself. Mm -hmm. um, so that will be through um, re reducing... Um, it, it's not about micro-generation necessarily, so it's not about putting solar panels on everything. It's not about um, having wind tur turbines everywhere, but it's about reducing the demand. Um, so you super-insulate... Um, you use heat that's being generated through the use of the building to just uh, you use air source heat pumps as well. So um, you're and then those are run off um, solar, but you yeah. should need next to nothing to, to run it. Okay. So it's not about um, just basically cranking up the amount of energy that you generate on site in order to feed the house. It's still as um, sort of not it's not carbon but an energy footprint yeah. you're just getting from the sun and who is really um, like pushing for um passive house like technologies is it well, I think planners okay i think clients are and i think i think planners um planners like to say in their local plans that they're they're, they're targeting net zero and, and they, they should be so mm. yeah i mean it's definitely got to be front and center of their thinking but actually, when it comes down to it, and I work with a lot of existing buildings as well, because I mean, obviously in London, you'll, you'll work with existing buildings uh, primarily. Uh, but when you want to extend houses and you need to deliver uh, a, a really low carbon footprint, you're going to have to make your fabric thicker. You're, so when you're designing lofts and you want to give people headroom, you're going to have to design bigger, thicker fabric and your extensions get bigger mm. and I've, I've been having a, a long-standing debate an email conversation with various but a particular planner at a particular in a particular london borough and i sort of probably about a year and a half ago i explained to him that well you know one of the reasons why some of the things that we're doing just just don't appear like they used to and, and why we can't deliver what you're asking for in your your supplementary planning document which yeah. basically 
sets out the parameters to which you can generally build, although there, are the, the, there is a little bit of leeway. Um, but generally, it's like a rule of thumb. So if you put, uh, say, a, a, a dormer, a dormer on the back of your house, you've got to have it a certain distance below the, the, the original roof line. Because you're super insulating, you're getting closer and closer. And now we're sort of at the limit and we're pushing beyond the limit of what you can really deliver yeah. and deliver the plans, what they want to see visually. And so I've sort of been priming the planners for ages. And then maybe about three or four months ago, I got an email back saying, Oh, it's, it's, you know, that email that you sent me like 18 months ago. Is that the reason why I'm seeing all these applications that, that are this big and don't necessarily comply with the supplementary planning document? And the answer is yes. Mm. Um, so the planners have to think, well, no, I think, I'm not going to tell them what they have to do, but I yeah. believe that they, they, if they wanted to deliver net zero, I mean, one of the ways that they can do is to, to allow people to improve their homes, to make them more energy efficient. Um, and if that means, unfortunately, um, um, homes don't necessarily look like they looked in the, the, the um, 19th century, as they used to look well mm. i guess i mean what's most important to you yeah that's the question um and most of my stuff is well all of my stuff is very respectful but it takes it just sometimes it takes a different view it's a different perspective from maybe what the design and conservation officers want um it's a lot more time consuming designing a house with um passive house like technologies uh yeah, I mean, like I say, most of my stuff is existing, so uh, it's very hard to deliver on. Ex oh no, I think it's difficult to deliver on existing projects on on existing buildings. So new build, but what you do is you go in from the start, and it has to be from day one. You have to do it from the outset. Okay. Uh, and then, I mean, hopefully, it just becomes natural to everyone, and it just becomes what you need to do. I can remember, I can remember the days when we we designed cavity walls that were really skinny and hardly had any insulation in and now they're fatter and they need more so it's just something that we i mean i think one thing i mentioned when we spoke before was um and this is probably a slightly political point but i think that that sort of the current moves in the government to change the goalposts aren't helpful i would rather yeah. have something really high to aim at and know that i've got to deliver that from now rather than having to because because the building regulations get revised so often that you you're just constantly revising what you're doing and yeah. you're not learning um you're sort of learning on the job in a way uh i just much rather people told us that you need to deliver this and you know whether it's 10 15 20 years ahead of what we think we might need now yeah at least everybody knows it. and everyone that has a building project now knows that that building project is good for 30, 40, 50 years, which is what we should be thinking about yeah. anyway. I mean, we shouldn't really be building stuff which is going to be obsolete in 10 years or 15 years, should we? So It's just wasteful. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned before that um, you did a sabbatical in mm -hmm. the South Pacific. Mm. Could you tell us a little bit about that and your work-life balance? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I spoke about being a sole practitioner and one of the reasons why that is is because of our time in the pacific because before up until that point i'd always worked for people and i probably ended up as a sole practitioner way later than i needed to do but i had a, a i had a, a kick to do it yeah um, so my wife um my wife works for or at the time worked for the un and uh, we got a, a short notice at six weeks notice 
she got invited to go and work in Solomon Islands, which is basically beyond Papua New Guinea, like yeah. way out in the Pacific. And we didn't even really know where it was. But, um, so we had six weeks to pack up, agree a sabbatical with my employer, um, which sort of worked out in that I got my job back when we came back in between. But yeah. But, um, uh, and who I was it you were working with at the time? So I was working with a practice just down the corner in, in Hoban, actually. Um, so we were a small practice. I'm not mentioning any names, but yes. we, we were a small practice, maybe five or six people. Uh, so I was a big part. I was I, beneath the, the, the practice principal. I was the most senior person then. Mm-hmm. So it was a big thing for him to let me go at six weeks' notice. It was ama- it was amazing of him, and, and you know I really and I really appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, and I did go back and then I, but by the time I went back, I, I sort of discovered a different work-life balance as well. Yeah. Um, and because you're going to the Solomon Islands, I couldn't work as an architect. There was no real work as an architect. Uh, plus the visa with the UN our, our spouses weren't allowed to work. Okay. So I homeschooled the children. So back then, wow. how old they have been? They would have been seven, <laughs> seven, five and two. Yeah, seven, five and two. So Did you have any experience with homeschooling? teaching? Homeschooling, no, no, not at all, no, no. Uh, certainly not at that age group anyway, yeah, uh, may, maybe. Yeah. Anyway, um, I can remember arriving in Honiara at the airport and then my wife suddenly got, no, we weren't at the airport, we were at the UN offices, and my wife got whisked off straight into a meeting after a 23-hour journey to get there. And then I was just left with a two-year-old. It filled her nappy. Oh gosh! Uh, in in the UN toilet where they don't have baby in South Pacific, they don't have baby changing facilities oh. at, at all. And I didn't have any of the equipment I did, but just gone. And, and um, but yeah, uh, so work-life balance. It sort of switched everything on its head. Yeah. Um, and coming back, we from set from. Solomon Islands, we ended up in Fiji, uh, and same deal as well, just homeschooling, uh, but with a few more facilities in Fiji. I mean, Solomon Islands is one of those places that I can remember when we when we left Solomon's, uh, me and my son, we were both in tears because like, it was like the love, you would never see a place like that ever, ever again. Things change so quickly in the world, you, you'll never, it's a place that the likes of which we never saw and we'd never see again. So we knew that at the time when we left. Yeah. Uh, Fiji was much more, um, developed. They had, I mean, Fiji and Suva, they've got three cinemas, which is three more than Lewisham's got. Um, and, and, you know, take, they had McDonald's and stuff and, and you know, all, all the stuff that, but, but different. But, yeah. but, but Solomon Islands was, um, and I homeschooled and we, homeschooled very very hands-on mm-hmm. uh practically so it would be a very practical education teaching them about volcanoes which their class was learning about the school by actually going to a volcano and walking in awesome. and smelling the sulfur wow um yeah getting trying to find the source of the Lunga river and looking at the crocodiles and and yeah it, it, was, it was it was amazing it was, did you it was find brilliant. you learned a lot yourself yeah well. yeah absolutely i learned a lot about myself about everything mm-hmm. uh and it, you know you know what what um brought flashbacks of that period was covid yeah. as well because when covid struck um and and i was i was still you know by then i'd sort set set up the practice I still had plenty of work though, uh, and I was working for myself, but at the same time, everyone was around. I mean, in Solomon's, we were, 
there were in the whole of Solomon Islands, I think there were 65 Britons in, in the whole of Solomon Islands. We were sort of number 60 to 64. Yeah. Yeah. So the five of us. Um, um, so we, there wasn't a big expat community or anything. So we were literally our, our, ourselves as a, as a family, as that little network, because we left at six weeks notice. Our stuff didn't arrive for ages. We were sort of living very much on the hoof. Goodness. In our own little bubble, our own team, and when COVID happened, it sort of felt a bit like that as well. Um, and I know these 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 things sort of change your perspective on yeah. what's important, and and you know that's for me personally. But I also know that it's changed things for clients as well. And yeah. I think their time at home, which is, which is why I think sort of COVID didn't bring the massive drop off in work that I was fearing because I'm in the domestic sector. I think people were stuck in their homes thinking about what's really important to us, where do we spend most of our time, where do we want to spend most of our yeah. times. And it wasn't necessarily in the office. I mean, ironically, I, I had a boss who was a developer architect and it was really, really commercially minded and really commercially driven. And again, I won't mention names, but um, he, he was exceptional because he employed a load of young staff and we got loads of experience and it was fantastic for us, but we all hated some elements of it we we all hated it and we sort of couldn't wait to get out of there and when we got all our experience we left but one thing he told me ironically was no one ever on their deathbeds no one ever says um i wish i'd spent more time in the office <laughs> even though we spent loads of time in the office working for him um but yeah and i think things like going to the solomons and, and fiji and, and you know covid we were really fortunate through covid um we were very careful and, and you know there are other risks you said you know lots of people discuss about about their own experiences but from my experience we were lucky to have that strong family bonds that we developed through our time away yeah and work and i sort of see that in clients and i like to i like to feel that some of the work that i do helps them foster that a bit more do you think your perspective changed after you came back from the south pacific oh, yeah, yeah. in architecture how, how can how can it not yeah i mean um we were talking about environmental stuff earlier um while we were there there were terrible terrible floods uh, climate change we saw climate change that's yeah. my, my my wife's role was in disaster risk reduction so okay. that's, I, I hear it all the time yeah uh, and I sort of un- understand it and I understood it or at least I thought that when you see it you really understand it yeah um, yeah I mean it's I can see it in my, my mind's eye now I mean houses washing away into the river the, yeah. the bridge washing away and just just through Doesn't, rain and you, you don't you, unless you see it you don't you, you don't get a real view yeah. but you think you're you're invincible and you can just carry on as you normally do. And and I think that really did make me feel that you can't carry on as you normally do. Yeah. Because that area has some of the worst flooding in the world, doesn't it? Like, Yeah, in cyclones as well. Um, you know, my wife always gets, I don't know, people call them natural disasters, which gets a bit cross about being natural disasters. Mm. Uh, and, and then... Um, yeah, but, but it's also about building resilience into these places as well. I mean... Um, um, that, that sort of stuff that, that she could talk on talk on for hours but but i think maybe that that idea of resilience i mean maybe we, we all need a little bit more resilience in our in our in our lives on I mean, various levels um yeah 
Um, and I think helping people to make their lives a little bit future-proofing. Yeah, I, I, yeah. Yeah, like Maybe. you mentioned before, with the sort of environmental technologies as well, like everything, we need to be looking to the future now. Yeah, I think so. But not just that. I mean, working with clients, sort of thinking about, I, mean, I work with a lot of young families that see their children, they're going to be like three and four years old for the rest of their lives, and they're, yeah. they're not going to be. So you sort of think about the way that you design spaces to be relatively flexible, um practical for people in terms of the, the short term but also long term. So I was having a, word, a chat with clients earlier about sort of the amount of space that they, they, they needed and what have you and thinking about especially in London um, where, are, where are sort of where, this is purely selfish but where are my children going to live? Okay, So you know, it's like the opposite yeah. of nimbyism isn't it? Yeah. Where, where, are, where are our children going to live? Yeah. Um, so what <laughs> I mean, answer me that. When if you're not building homes for people, we're sort of What's the plan? storing up a massive problem for ourselves, yeah. aren't we? And it's the same with the environment as well. We're storing up all these all these problems for ourselves, um, and it's short term. I, I, I think um, there's always that debate about um, waste a waste of money or an investment in the future. I'm always minded to think that it's always an investment in the future. Yeah. I mean, are would you say people are sort of thinking to the future in terms of accommodating their children, even if they're young right now, are they thinking like, okay, when it, when they are adults, is that something people are taking into consideration more or are they more, not on that time yeah, scale? More, more and more so, I would say. Um, people sort of think about, I mean, they sort of think about, I mean, th- they make decisions like that um, at every level as to where you can send your children to primary school um, dictates where you live in London. Um, there's also, and, and, you know, some people have the luxury of being able to make those choices. Uh, and I guess a lot of my clients do. Um, so, yeah, th- these are sort of, uh, may- maybe, I'm, uh, maybe I'm sort of facilitating them to make these options that they, they're very lucky to have the, the options to make yeah um, I've always um, having been in the South Pacific before and seen all that I've since then just really considered myself to be very 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 lucky mm-hmm. incredibly lucky um, I do something that I really enjoy doing um, I work with people that I want to work with and that want to work with me and that's the benefit of being the sole practitioner and yeah. being able to if you know, if, if if I meet someone and and I really don't get a good, and they might not get a good vibe for me, so maybe I would never get the job anyway. But I, 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 I can. I'm in that lucky position where at the moment I can say no to to work, um, and um, and you know, even if it goes quiet um, and we have to sort of tighten our belts a bit, at least, you know, it goes quite, I can spend more time doing other things that are important to me. Yeah, definitely. Um, what, yeah. just to, to wrap up, what advice would you give to a young professional in the architecture industry or someone thinking about going into it? Um, get as much good experience as you can. Um, I, I guess rather than, then, people have different perspectives on this. So you might want to work with prestigious practice so that you can put it on your CV and it might lead to the next job. That's fair enough. Uh, But I don't know how much experience you'd get within that environment. Um, Do you mean in terms like summer 
you know, work experience. Yeah, even when you, yeah, I mean, I don't know what, what the sort of work market is like at, at the moment. I can imagine it's really, really tough. When, when I left uni, like I say, it was the millennium, turn of the millennium. There was so much work out there that, that we were basically choosing who we applied to and we got our jobs where we chose to. So yeah. that's not the case now. I know that's not market, the case yeah. now. So, I mean, maybe it's, maybe that's, maybe that's advice for an ideal world. Um, but if you can, um, work somewhere where you get really good experience and you meet clients and you're responsible for, you know, as, as much as you can be, as much as you can take on, um, in terms of, um, so advice for people getting into the profession it depends on at what age. Um, I mentioned before about there being different types of school, but, 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 you know, that's a good thing because it doesn't matter whether you feel you're really artistic or whether you're really scientific or whether you enjoy sort of the debates around architecture and the philosophy of architecture, you'll find a school that, that, that will be able to, to, to do that for you. So, you know, don't necessarily restrict your choices according to what one interceptions. Yeah. Yeah. Do, Choose what you're really interested in to study. It might be by the time you get down to make those applications to the university that you're not going to study architecture anyway. Yeah, um, but it's just ticking things off a list, trying to deduce what you know you actually do want to do. Yeah, um, but but then again, architecture is a really broad field as well. It's really, really. I mean, certainly the degree that I did was was opened up doors for lots of people to do lots of other things as well. So um, I wouldn't. I mean, some people get to architecture school, I guess, and they find that they really, really don't like it. But then again, I had lots of people that that, that went off and, and did other degrees after a term. Um, I think, um, yeah, a, apply to what you really, really want to do and suck it and see. And uh, it's different. Everything is different now. We didn't pay fees. It's, it's the way that, I mean, I'm in this debate because my son is applying to go to university yeah. next year so it's a completely different landscape we were i keep saying this we were really really lucky yeah and i find it really it's I quite it it's really very sad yeah yeah and the other thing about architecture is it's a long course and mm. people are going to be put off it so you it's even a lot of in money. my even in my day you looked around the studio and you looked at the schools that that, that my peers went to and the family backgrounds that they had it was super, super affluent, super middle class. Yeah. Um, and I think it's only going to get more so because people back then, fees weren't, you know, weren't paying for fees. And, and, and you, but it was, it's much more, and, and I hope that this debate doesn't put people off though, because I mean, ultimately, um, if you go to university and, and you earn X amount, I know they're tightening it up now, so so it's it's, it's less of a free hit in a way. Yeah. But that idea of, of, of student loans being effectively a graduate tax. Yeah. Um, and, and once you earn up to a certain point, then you know you won't you won't feel it, and you will feel it more because of changing the rules. Um, but um, I'd hate to think that that people's backgrounds or or, or people's family wealth dictated the sort of the next generation who who the next generation and what the next generation of architects looks like yeah i mean i'm you, you listen to that might not be able to sell it but um for my name they might do but i'm i'm um i'm um of indian origin and um i saw very few people like me back then yeah. i think that 
I mean, one thing that, that always amuses me is when I turn up to site in the first meeting, and uh, I know people often, uh, people, not not obviously the main contractors, but someone on site might assume that I work for local authority. I'm from from building control or something. Oh, really? Uh, so a lot of people don't assume I'm the architect. They don't think that I'm the architect. Um, I'd like that to be much more. I mean, I'm glad to say that that, that the profession's taking you know a, a, a much more proactive approach. Yeah. Um, and especially in terms of gender equality as well. Uh, when I was at school, I think at the class of 48, there were 12 women. I guess I could say girls because they were 18 yeah. at the time. Um, on the course and now I think it's much more like it would be much more yeah, like 50 50 split be. yeah um whether that continues into the workplace I think that's the next challenge for, for, for the industry which certainly is nowhere near that and thinking back and thinking back to a lot of those people that I said that that weren't in architecture that I studied with also that, that a lot of them I'm trying to think of the, the, the women that I studied with still yeah, it's not a large percentage of them that's still in architecture. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's all we have time for today, but thank you so much for coming on now. It's been okay, a really yeah. interesting conversation. <laughs> yeah, so I got on a bit of a rant. No, no, it's, yeah. it's really interesting, and I'm sure our listeners will find it very enlightening as well. Don't be disheartened. You, you, it's a challenge to yourself to actually get on and do it. Because, yeah. I mean, un unless somebody challenges these conceptions about who is going to be the next generation of architects, yeah. then... Nothing's going to change. Got to grab the ball by the horns. Yeah. Well, yes, thank you so much. Um, and we'll see you on our, our next episode of The London Architect.